Welcome to journeywithjesus.net. <coughs> A weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called, If the Lord is God, Follow Him. Elijah and the Prophets of Baal. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, June the 2nd. 2013. Back in 1984, Phyllis Tribble published a book called Texts of Terror. It was about the Bible's cruel treatment of women. Ever since then, her catchy title has served as a proxy for all sorts of violence that's contained in the Bible. This week's story about Elijah's slaughter of the 450 prophets of Baal is a case in point. You read the story, and about all you can say is, wow. The story is especially vexing because it combines two problems for any religion. First, religious pluralism, and second, sacred violence. Like most of life's important questions, a short essay can't do justice to these complex problems. But maybe we can make a start. In his book, Laying Down the Sword, Why We Can't Ignore the Bible's Violent Verses, Philip Jenkins examines the most terrifying texts of all, those in which God commands his people to exterminate their enemies without mercy. He includes a table of 19 passages with the most disturbing conquest texts. For example, there's Deuteronomy 7, 1-2. Thou shalt smite them and utterly destroy them, Thou shalt make no covenant with them, nor show mercy unto them. In 1 Samuel 15, God even killed King Saul precisely because he spared the Amalekite king Agag. Samuel, we read, then hewed Agag in pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Today we would call these war crimes, or crimes against humanity. How should we interpret them? Believers have developed numerous strategies to read these texts of terror. Practically speaking, most of us ignore them. We pay lip service to the idea that every sentence of all 66 books of the Bible is equally inspired. But in practice, that's not how we read scripture. Most of us have what's called a canon within the canon. In other words, we privilege some parts of the Bible over others. For example, this week's story about the Jewish Jesus welcoming the pagan centurion feels closer to the heart of God than Elijah's mass murder of 450 prophets of Baal. Others dismiss these texts as crude stories of a savage antiquity. They reflect the violent age and stage of human culture that we've outgrown. Or so goes the argument. Some readers appeal to a divine wisdom that's incomprehensible to mere mortals. Affirming modesty and mystery is good. But the appeal to ignorance becomes dangerous when we call evil good. Still others argue that Israel's enemies, like the Canaanites or the prophets of Baal, were evil and deserved their fate. I've never been 
persuaded by this argument, but it's one that you sometimes hear. Texts of terror aren't limited to Judaism and Christianity. They're problematic for most all religions. No one religion is worse than another when it comes to sacred violence. Most readers interpret these texts with a degree of historical skepticism and not as eyewitness reportage. Daniel Berrigan, for example, reads First and Second Kings as self-serving imperial records that portray Israel's kings as they saw themselves and as they wanted others to see them. That is, God is with us and against our enemies. Many early Christians, like Origen, used allegory to interpret the Bible. They sought higher spiritual truths beneath the lowly historical narrative. To be sure, a religion is always more than its texts. A minority of extremists don't represent the mainstream majority, and the causes of violence can't be reduced to religion alone. Another idea is that the evolution of religions across millennia suggests progress from the savage to the enlightened. Robert Wright explores this line of his thought in his book, The Evolution of God. <clears throat> and finally, the Bible's historical descriptions of sacred violence don't imply moral prescriptions for us today. The Bible contains many things that we rightly reject rather than imitate. Nonetheless, at the end of the day, these texts of terror were canonized as sacred literature. We should let them stand as they are rather than explain them away. It's almost always a self-serving exercise to snip and clip the Bible into your own image. Philip Jenkins's own conclusion comes as a welcome surprise. All these strategies of selective editing, he says, aren't helpful or even necessary. He encourages us to read, absorb, comprehend, and even preach these texts of terror. Since these texts were written about 500 years after the purported events, and since they enjoy little to no archaeological support, Jenkins says we should treat these stories with real historical skepticism. And so he digs deeper for a core message, and I quote, The imagined war against outside peoples and customs symbolized a rejection of any and all things that distract or separate a people or an individual from God. In fact, this is exactly what we read in Elijah's confrontation with the prophets of Baal. We read in 1 Kings 18.21, If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. Religious pluralism that argues for a radical parody of all faiths suggests that you can never be wrong that God has many names and all the roads lead to the top of the mountain. But some religious views and practices are clearly farce, false, harmful, and even despicable.
Aztec, Aztec human sacrifice and Buddhist almsgiving don't deserve equal respect. Nor do Hindu widow burning, female infanticide, phallic worship, and the mass suicide of 913 people at Jim Jones's People's Temple in Guyana. In a line of argument that he mentions but does not develop, Jenkins also quotes René Girard of Stanford, who argues that the Bible is the first text to prevent sacred violence from the perspective of the victim. And so, paradoxically, says Girard, it is for biblical reasons that we criticize the Bible. So, maybe the moral of Elijah on Mount Carmel is a very healthy choose wisely. Psalm 96 for this week illustrates the core truth of radical monotheism, that the absolute God deserves unconditional obedience from all the earth. <clears throat> For books this week, I review a title by historian Gary Wills. It's called Why Priests? A Failed Tradition. New York Viking 2013. 302 pages. The Catholic Church might hope for better days with a new pope. But historian Gary Wills wrote in a recent editorial that he has lost hope. And in this, his newest book, he says he has no need for pope or priest. Not that he thinks things will change, or even that he even advocates a priestless church. He has nothing against priests, and even spent five years in a Jesuit seminary studying to be one. For him, the issue is historical and not personal. The Office of Priests is a later addition to the original Jesus story. There's no evidence, says Wills, that Peter was the first bishop anywhere, least of all Rome. In the Gospels, Jesus is a bitter critic of the priestly hierarchy that would mediate access to God. The earliest Jesus movement was radically egalitarian, says Will, Wills, and characterized by charisms and functions, not powerful offices. There's nothing new in any of this argument, certainly not to Protestants. What makes priests so powerful, says Wills, is that they have the power in the Eucharist to change bread and wine into the body and blood of Christ. Wills thus makes a long and technical digression into the theological weeds that will be lost on a general readership. He contrasts the scholastic theology of transubstantiation in Aquinas and others with his own beloved Augustine, who denied the physical presence of Christ in the Eucharist. There follow long discussions about the mythic priest Melchizedek of Genesis 14 in Psalm 110, verse 4, how the complex book of Hebrews construes Jesus as a priest and sacrifice after the line of Melchizedek, and about penal sacrificial theories of the atonement, which Wills rejects. If Peter and Paul didn't need a priest, says Gary Wills, neither do we.
we do need fellowship and belief. And for that, he says, we have each other. So if Wills doesn't believe in the basis, basic Catholic doctrines of popes and priests and sacraments, what does he believe? And why does he stay in the Catholic Church? He admits, I get that question all the time. In a wonderful one-liner at the end of the book, he says he believes in those things which are central and essential and not incidental and peripheral, like the Apostles' Creed. That seems a fair amount to believe, he says tongue-in-cheek. Yes, it does. Gary Wills, Why Priests, 2013. For film this week, I view an excellent movie from Israel. It's called The Gatekeepers. This documentary film interviews all six living former heads of Shin Bet, Israel's secret security agency that's the rough equivalent of the CIA. These leaders are chastened men who look back over 50 years of the Palestinian conflict and conclude to a person that peace through violence will never happen. You can win all the battles with overwhelming force and very much lose the war. As one of them said, when you retire and think about these things, it makes you a leftist. Said another, we've become a cruel people. One of the most interesting parts was the extensive treatment of Israel's religious right extremists, the settlements, and the assassination of Yitzhak Rabin by a Zionist punk with a rifle, who was not even on any of their watch lists. The film intersperses graphic archival footage with the sober interviews, which range across a broad array of military, political, and moral issues, like the humanity of your enemy, the folly of war, murky intelligence that doesn't reduce to binary options, collateral damage, and what might define victory for everyone concerned. The title of the film is The Gatekeepers, 2012 from Israel. It's in English, in Hebrew, with English subtitles. And now for the season of Memorial Day, we've posted a poem by Seslov Milos, who lived from 1911 to 2004. He won the Nobel Prize in Literature in 1980. The title of this poem is called A Nation. The purest of nations on earth when it's judged by a flash of lightning but thoughtless and sly in everyday toil. Pitiless to its widows and orphans, pitiless to its old people, stealing a crust of bread from a child's hand. Ready to offer their lives to draw heaven's wrath on their foes, smiting their enemy with the screams of orphans and women.
entrusting power to men with the eyes of traitors in gold, elevating men with the conscience of brothel keepers. The best of its sons remain unknown. They appear only once, to die on the barricades. Bitter tears of that people cut a song off in the middle, and when the song dies away, noisy voices tell jokes. A shadow stands in a corner, pointing to his heart. Outside a dog howls to the invisible planet. Great nation, <coughs> invincible nation, ironic nation. They know how to distinguish truth and yet to keep silent. They camp on marketplaces, conversing in wisecracks. They deal in old door handles stolen from ruins. A nation in crumpled caps, carrying all they own. They go west and south, searching for a place to live. It has no cities, no monuments, no painting or sculpture. Only the word passed from mouth to mouth and prophecy of poets. A man of that nation, standing by his son's cradle, repeats words of hope, always until now in vain. Sheslov Milos, A Nation. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, June the 2nd, 2013. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.